You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 217 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. I'm back. And where did I go, you might ask? Well, if you heard last week's episode, you know that I took a leave of absence and this very foul-mouthed sentient AI hosted the show. But all that's in the past, because I am back. Now before we start the show, I want to read this review from Just20. Amazing, amazing podcast. Very authentic, sharp host. Creative editing. And some episodes more experimental. Other episodes pure intellectual. Interviews and talks. Listen to everything that comes out. Well, thank you so much for that nice review. And I aim to please. And if you feel pleased by me, please consider becoming a patron and support this podcast. I'm sure you have a buck or two a month to spare. And if you don't have that, you can always leave a nice review, like Just20 did, uh, on iTunes. And maybe I'll read it here in the podcast. All right. Now, in this episode, my guest is Dr. Penny Sartori. She is highly experienced and skilled in her role as an intensive care staff nurse and has conducted unique and extensive research into the near-death experiences of her patients, so-called NDEs. In 2005, she was awarded a PhD for her research into NDEs. Dr. Sartori's work has received worldwide attention and media coverage. She has spoken at many conferences, both nationally and internationally. And her work has received the attention of His Royal Highness Prince Charles. And she is on this podcast because I love talking about near-death experiences. And I wonder if those that have died ever have a near-life experience. <laughs> hmm. Anyway, here's Dr. Penny Sartori. So thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. It's nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Um, yeah, my name is Dr. Penny Sartori, and I used to work as a nurse in intensive care. And I did um, a long-term prospective study of near-death experiences at the hospital where I worked. Um, I did that study between 1997. I started the pilot study. And then from 1998 to 2003, I interviewed patients who survived their admission to the intensive care unit. And then it took me three years to analyse the data and write it up. And at the end of the research, then I was awarded a PhD for my work. So it's still uh, on the level of respectability in the medicine community. Then they don't brush away any experiences, to, even though they don't have proof. That's right. Well, that's one of the things really I found with my research. When I started doing my research, um, a lot of my colleagues were very skeptical about the research and they didn't really understand it and they were laughing at it. 
But then as my research progressed, they realized that it was really um, beneficial for the patients to have a deeper understanding of these experiences. And I think at the end of the, the research, at the end of the eight years, I think my colleagues were very intrigued and um, they did ask a lot of questions. And certainly the doctors told the junior doctors to come and chat with me about my research as well. And I think they, you know, it, it made them realise that near-death experiences certainly do happen and we can no longer dismiss them or explain them away because what the research is showing is that they are far more than hallucinations. They are not attributable to the drugs, um, but what these patients are experiencing is very valid and very important. Some of the experiments I read that are trying to prove it are devised with our our reality's logic and that's why those experiments are not successful like I read about one hospital that was putting pictures or letters uh, up in the ceiling facing the ceiling so if somebody leaves their body they can see what's up there and then they should be able to say what those images were but if you're actually leaving your body uh, you you don't know how it works, so you might not see these like uh, images that the doctors put there because uh, you're focused on other things, or you might not leave through the roof. Maybe two different dimensions open up, and I don't know how it w- what would happen. But the the experiments uh, uh, doesn't prove that it's not true because the experiment itself is might not be correct. Yes, I agree with you, because I, I did that experiment with my research, and I hid these hidden symbols that could only be viewed from an out-of-body perspective. But what I found is during my research, there was a different quality of the, the out-of-body experience. So what I found with the eight people who described the experience... Some of them only floated up a short way above their body, so they weren't in a position to view the symbols. Some people floated out in opposite directions to where they were situated. But there were two patients who had a kind of experience where they would have been in a position to view the the hidden symbols. But both of those patients said that they were too concerned with what we were doing to their bodies to be looking around for that hidden symbol. As you quite rightly said, it might be that it's because it's designed from our dimension and our kind of um, understanding of -of near-death out-of-body experiences, but perhaps the out-of-body experience is completely different to what our perceptions of it are. So it could be something in a completely different dimension that we do not yet understand. Did you ever interview somebody that you got the feeling that they are pretending to have had a a near-death experience? Because that's usually what people who don't believe it say, oh, they're just pretending. But uh, And I could, uh, you know, like 50 years ago, uh, when you noticed accounts of near-death experiences that were so similar, it's kind of like proof, like, oh. Uh, But now with the internet and it's so easy to fake it because I know what kind of... I, I could ha- pretend to have a, an NDE and be fairly accurate but the, because I've read so many accounts. Yes, exactly. That's a good point. But what I found with my hospital research is that the patients didn't volunteer the information. 
it was only because I approached them and I said to them, did you have any recollection of the time that you were unconscious? Now, most patients didn't remember anything, but there were a few who quite reluctantly at first started to describe an experience, but they were very um, cautious about telling me because they didn't know if I was going to laugh at them or disbelieve them or think that they were crazy. So they weren't kind of volunteering that information. It, In fact, out of the 15 cases that I came across in the hospital, only two of those patients volunteered the information. If I hadn't approached the other 13 patients, they would never have told me about their experience. <clears throat> so I don't think any of the patients were lying about their experience at all. Um, and certainly, you know, I've had thousands and thousands of people write to me over the years. And they're not in, when they write to me about their experience, they're, they're writing to me to ask for answers to their questions and for help in processing this experience. So I don't think if they were lying, they would go to the length of, asking me such questions in trying to process such a, a complicated and complex experience. So, you know, I'm sure out there, there are people who have tried to make up an experience, but certainly the people I've encountered, especially the ones in my hospital research, I don't think any of them were lying at all, to be honest. What's the difference between, I mean, where, where do you draw the line? I mean, if somebody is having maybe just a dream and they're not, or are they clinically dead or how do you differentiate when it's, is it actually a real NDE? Well, near-death experience is measured by um, a scale devised by the psychiatrist uh, Dr. Pro uh, Bruce Grayson and it's called the Grayson NDE scale. So that's what we use as a standard measure to assess if someone has had an experience. And what I did with my research is that some patients were clearly hallucinating and I documented cases of patients who had been hallucinating and I documented patients who'd had the near-death experience. And I found that those who had been hallucinating, when I followed them up about six months after the experience, they could rationalise that they had been hallucinating. And in fact, some of them were quite embarrassed by their behaviour because it was out of character for them. And um, the, when I investigated the patients who'd been hallucinating, it was attributable to the background noise as they were waking up from uh, waking up from sedation. So the things like the staff conversation, the alarms that were going off in the background, the noise, what they could feel us doing to them, it all contributed to a bizarre and random hallucination. Whereas with the patients who'd had the near-death experience, it was very clear and precise, and it followed that pattern um, of going through the tunnel towards the light and meeting deceased relatives, whereas the hallucinations didn't have that pattern And it was all attributable, you know, to the background noise. And also as well with with a near-death experience, that differs because people who have near-death experiences are profoundly changed by their experience. And you, you find that the the experience itself leads on to something else. It, it transforms their life in some way. And very often they go, they're not the person they were before their experience. And very often they, 
they transform into something completely different as well. What about people that have been in a coma for a long time? Do those people ever remember anything from their coma? Very often not, but there are a few cases where people recall a few things. Um, But very often it's very confusional. You know, I've nursed thousands and thousands of patients in my career as an intensive care nurse. And when people come around from a coma, it's they're usually very confused and disorientated for a long time, you know, a, a couple of weeks sometime. Um, and then sometimes they can remember fragments of actual events that happened while they were unconscious because they could hear things going on, perhaps. But, um, yeah, it's, it's very different to what people recall during a near-death experience. Can can somebody have a near death experience if they're, I mean, if they're clinically like their heart stops, or, and or if their, you know, brain waves stop, or is there one one of those that it doesn't work? Um, the near death experience can happen to people with all kinds of um, illnesses. It, it can happen through a road traffic accident. It can happen through near drowning from a cardiac arrest. Um, a medical emergency it can happen in all sorts of circumstances but what I found with uh, my research is that it's more common in cases of cardiac arrest so I found it easier to study the near-death experience in association with cardiac arrest cases in the hospital research. What would you say is a common theme I mean the famous thing is this tunnel uh I'm I'm thinking also it's so famous going through this tunnel that maybe we all have it in in our spine in the back of our head that we might be projecting it. So is there anything else that apart from that that's uh, common amongst all of them? Well, well, what I found with my hospital research was that um, meeting dead relatives and uh, very often the relatives sent them back to life. Or they were angry to see them there. They, one lady in my research said, I saw my mother who was dead and she was shaking her finger at me and saying, what are you doing here? You go back there and look after the children. And there was another man in my research. And again, he came across, he found himself in a tunnel. He was in the black tunnel. There was a white dot at the end of the tunnel. But he said when he was in the tunnel, he came across a group of men who he used to work with. And they were all dead, all from his past. They were all dead and they were very angry and they were saying, what are you doing here? As if he shouldn't be there. And he said, well, I don't know what I'm doing. And they said, go away, go back. And uh, he said he woke back up in his body. So meeting dead relatives was the most common theme I came across in my research. But there's other themes, sort of um, the feelings of peace and tranquility Um, Sometimes people meet a religious figure or a being of light. Very often that figure is associated with the person's culture. So people in the West are more likely to see images of Jesus Christ, whereas people in India, for example, are more likely to see Yama, the god of the dead. Um, A life review is very common. And with the life review, it's very interesting because people actually feel that they relive the whole of their life. And they may only be unconscious for a matter of seconds, but they've actually relived the whole of their life. And sometimes they can relive parts of their life from a third person perspective. So people who they've interacted with throughout their life 
they can suddenly feel like what it's like to be in their shoes. And there's been examples of people who have inflicted violence on some people, but then they've been standing in their shoes and they feel like what it's like to be on the receiving end of that violence. And conversely as well, when people have done nice deeds, they also feel like what it's like to be in receipt of those nice deeds as well. And when people return to life after the near-death experience, very often the experience of the life review is what guides them from a moral perspective as well. So it's a very um, interesting aspect of the near-death experience. So uh, with the relatives, when you meet your relatives, then what confuses me is that... uh, if there's a thing so if there is a thing like reincarnation then it would be logical if the dead relatives are hanging around oh yes with reincarnation it's very difficult to say if it's if it does exist or not so that's a that's a quite a, a difficult one to answer um but again it could just be images that people are familiar with as well you know so But there again, people say, well, isn't it just wishful thinking then that they're going to see their relatives? But an interesting thing to that is that not everyone sees the relatives who they hope they would see. One man in my hospital research said, I can't understand why I didn't see my mother. I was very close to my mother, but I didn't see my mother. I saw my father. Why is that? So people don't often see the people they're expecting to see. And... um, uh, oh, I've lost my thread there with that. But yeah, so it's it's really quite difficult. And it's, it's almost as if when people have the near-death experience, what they're doing is accessing what Carl, Carl Jung called the archetypal realm and the collective unconscious. So what perhaps people are picking up on is this um, collective unconscious and they're interpreting archetypal imagery through their own cultural and personal filter as well. It could also be that uh, reincarnation is not linear, so you might reincarnate as your grandmother, so it on on in the afterlife it might make more sense. Also, I read this book, The Dead Saints Chronicles, if you know about that book. And, uh, and anyway, in that book there was one, one NDE experience that I always remembered reading, and he he came to a place and maybe it was Jesus or somebody told him to build a staircase to a temple. So he labored on this staircase for hundreds of years out of stone. He was only dead for a few seconds, but he in, in this NDE, he was there for hundreds of years. Wow, that's interesting because a lot of people, when they have the near-death experience say that time and their concept of time just doesn't exist. So they can experience, you know, literally a massive amount of experience in a very brief matter of seconds of the time they were unconscious. And it's as if time just has no meaning for them at all. So it's interesting that you mention that. I've had it myself. Sometimes when you snooze and you have a long dream and it's only a few few seconds... Yes, that's right. That's the thing, isn't it? When we go into this unconscious of state, because sleep is a form of unconsciousness, I guess. And, you know, you do get that altered perception of time, certainly. Yeah. But what's confusing also reading all the NDE reports is that it's often this 
it could be it's liberating and you leave your body so you're more like a, an energy or a spirit you might see 360 degrees so it's very like uh, you're like a ghost you know or, you know you're not you're not material but then they always describe like meeting people building staircases or sitting down and it's like it sounds everything sounds material so it's a bit confusing when you're reading them those reports Mm, yeah I guess it is yeah and sometimes you know um, I've come across people who've had these experiences of of trying to climb steps for example one of my former colleagues who was a nurse she had a cardiac arrest when she was at nine years of age and she was knocked off her bike and she said during her near-death experience everything was black it was pitch black but then she could see this light at the top and she said to get to that light she had to climb these big steps which were much bigger than her body and she said it was a real struggle to climb up to these steps but um, she only got about halfway and then she couldn't go anymore and she was sent back to life then. But yeah, there are there is that aspect of it. Yeah. Did you ever interview or meet somebody who tried to commit suicide and had an NDE? Yes, I did. In fact, my um, the co-author of my book called "The Transformative Power of Near Death Experiences," she took uh, a big overdose of paracetamol and she didn't seek help for three days, and by that time it was beyond they they couldn't help her they couldn't um, pump her stomach because the the drugs were in her system so she went to into hospital and she was admitted to the psychiatric ward and it was while she was on the ward she went into a fearful state of mind and she thought I've just committed the worst sin by trying to take my life And there was a Bible at the bedside. So she started to pick up the Bible and she said it was as if she was downloading it all. She was like reading through it at great speed, but downloading the information immediately. And um, she said that then the priest came to see her because she asked for the priest. And then when he left her, she kind of lay back on the bed and she closed her eyes and then she she felt like she went into this altered state of consciousness and she said it was a struggle it was like darkness but then she felt that she was struggling to go beyond the darkness and she went beyond a bump and she describes it as there were seven bumps altogether seven bumps in the universe and once she got past that seventh bump she said it was the it was a big struggle she had this a life review her life being downloaded in front of her eyes as this was happening but once she was past that seventh bump of the universe she said that she was just enveloped in this deep deep and pure unconditional love and she said it's such a feeling that she can't even describe it in words it's beyond any words there's there are no words that can describe what she actually felt and the reason that she took the overdose is because she'd for years and years suffered with anxiety and depression and the depression had got so bad that she just felt she had no option other than to end her life but as a result of her experience that has turned her her life around and that depression has gone and she's no she's never been in that state of depression since her experience and um 
what's interesting about Ke- her name is Kelly Walsh. Kelly's actually set up now something called the po- Positivity Power Movement, and she's created a cartoon character called Positivity Princess, and she's set up um, a charity. And what she intends to do is she's patented the the goods for positivity princess and she wants to make this charity self-sustaining so she's got these great ideas and those ideas could make her a lot of money personally but she's not interested in personal gain she's putting any money that she makes into this charity so that she can do good around the world and that's just one example of how powerful the the effects of a near-death experience can be on someone. So for someone who's suicidal and depressed and has been all their life, to turn their life around in such a way, to me, just shows how remarkable these experiences are. And uh, I think that's the reason I got into NDEs and reading about them a lot is because they um, it's a natural... That's why... uh, um, if you work with psychedelics in a proper way, that's how they work. That's how they heal. It's like a safe version of do, having an NDE because you you get the life review. You can see your life from somebody else's perspective. Uh, you feel like you're dying, so you're happy when you di- that you didn't die, and all these things. So it's, it it reminds me a lot of the NDE reports, and you can meet God and all those things as well. So it's like a but what what scared me a bit is that uh, I just hope when you go to the afterlife that it's not psychedelic because even though the psychedelic psychedelics can be a very healing tool and and it looks beautiful and that you it's still you have to concentrate you you don't want to be in that environment forever. <laughs> So I hope the afterlife is more freer and more, f- f- I, don't know, I don't know how to say it, like less enclosed, like more like, because like now when you're awake, when everything's normal, it f- feels clearer. In the psychedelic realm, it can still be a bit like uh, chaos. It's hard to explain this. <laughs> I don't know if you understand what I mean. Yeah, that's interesting because... It it is like um, you know the psychedelics are a doorway into that state of deep unconsciousness really, and um, it's almost like we our understanding of consciousness that you know the scientific mate- well materialist perspective that the brain produces consciousness. I don't think, in light of my research and my studies, that. That doesn't seem like a plausible explanation. The best way of understanding consciousness is to view consciousness as primary. It's there all the time, but our brain acts like a filter and screens it out. And there are certain times in our life when that filter action of the brain relaxes more and it can relax during the near-death experience and during the ingestion of things like psychedelic drugs as well. So I think what they're doing is, is accessing this deep, altered state of consciousness. And perhaps when when we die, that's what we return to is pure consciousness because, you know, we're all energy at the end of the day and energy can neither be destro- um, created nor destroyed. It just changes form. And so perhaps our form just changes back into that pure consciousness. 
is it always humans or or human-like beings people see or because like for instance in psychedelics you can see very weird creatures but also if you think about the universe maybe other life forms on other planets if they die is it the same place Devian know anything about this yeah well yeah that's interesting because maybe you know these experiences <clears throat> perhaps it's just the initial phase of our transition into that fine source consciousness you know so maybe you know what we're experiencing is the initial stages of it and what's beyond that will be beyond our comprehension until we face it ourselves in its entirety during our own death yeah and it's and one thing is that that you know there's a difference between the psychedelics and near-death experiences and that is the context and the setting so when when you take psychedelic drugs you do take them with some form of expectation of what you're going to experience but with the near-death experience you can't plan to have one it's it happens very unexpectedly so perhaps the difference in the setting and the context kind of Im- impacts on what is experienced as well Many people say that when they've had psychedelic experiences, they're less afraid to die and they usually use psychedelics to treat people who are terminally ill because it makes it easier for them to die. Uh, And also people who have had near-death experiences say that they're not as afraid to die. But I've had such intense psychedelic experiences where you like... The best thing to describe it is like when you stand looking into the abyss even if the abyss is not bad it's a good abyss the the magnitude it's so big that it's scary so i'm a bit i'm still scared to die i mean it's because i and also you know a few years ago i had a baby Uh, it's the first time i have had something that traps me in this life like before I had the baby I was less I didn't didn't bother me so much because then you die you go into another adventure but now you know you want to bring you don't want to leave the baby behind so uh, I'm I'm struggling currently in my life with I'm a bit I don't want nobody wants to die I guess but I would never want to die but I will have to and that's a bit scary in that sense if you understand my point (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. I, I know, and I, I can identify with that because I too had a baby about. He's nearly five now, and um, it does change your life, doesn't it? It does change things for you. But one, one thing I can say is that I've spoken to quite a few people, um, mothers, in fact, who have had a near-death experience during childbirth. And what they described is that their experience was so overwhelming, and it was so beautiful where they were they wanted to stay where they were and then when they returned to life they had all this guilt because there was their newborn baby and they had been prepared to go beyond and to to die and it because just because it was a wonderful experience so sometimes they come back with guilt because you know they were prepared to go on and, and leave their family and loved ones behind so that that's a kind of flip side to what you're saying as well there you mentioned that people experience love, this blissful state of mind. And it's interesting because 
I have read a couple accounts of people having NDEs going to some sort of hell. Could be a reason they, you know, some people just can't let go and it becomes hell no matter what they experience. But I would say that 95% of all the reports are usually positive, uh, except maybe the life review bit could be negative if because everybody has has done something. But in general, it's positive. So, uh, which uh, kind of makes most religions fear-mongering? Well, yeah, that's it. It could be. But there again, I have come across the distressing kind of near-death experiences. And I find that they're much more difficult to research because people are reluctant to talk about them. Um, There's a lot of stigma involved with them because some people say, why have I had this distressing experience when everyone else has had a pleasant one? Is is there something wrong with me, the way I've been living my life? And so they're reluctant to talk about it. But in some cases, the experience can be so bad it and so terrifying for them. It's almost like a form of post-traumatic stress. And when they recall the experience, it's just too traumatic to recall it. And I've had quite a few people who have emailed me over the years trying to start to talk about this distressing experience. But it's very often they will say a little bit about the experience, but then it's so frightening that they, they can't go any further with it. They may come back to me in a few months time and tell me a little bit more. But very often these people are are terrified. And um, a recent case is of a man about two years ago, I last had contact with him and he was begging me to help him. And because he couldn't describe his experience to me, it was very difficult to help him as well. So, you know, there's something to these distressing experiences that we need to investigate further and come up with some form of therapy to help the people to understand the experience and to process it as well because i mean uh, they can't escape dying and now they're going to be extremely afraid of even getting old (laughs) yeah so with these experiences people don't know why people do have the distressing kind it's nothing to do with the person's moral character either you know even the nicest people can have the distressing kind of experiences um, and one thing, as you said, as you mentioned briefly, is that, you know, sometimes it's fighting the experience. It's almost like the the ego clinging on to life. And it's when the person relinquishes the ego and lets go and stops resisting that experience that very often it can turn into a pleasant experience as well. Because there's many cases documented that started off in a very distressing way, but they ended up in a very pleasant way. Well, Alan Watts has this theory about uh, God getting bored, so he invents uh, he has a, invents a dream where he p- can do anything he wants, so that gets boring, and then he pretends he forgets, so the dream becomes more enjoyable, and then eventually he comes up with our lives that we are having now, completely forgetting when we die that we are all God. You know, th- that's that's his theory. My flip on that is, uh, so aren't we like doing disservice by uh, trying to study near-death experiences or thinking about the afterlife and that or revealing things? Shouldn't we just like uh, pretend, uh, you know, you know, pretend we're playing the game and not like try and figure it out? Oh, I don't know. I 
for me, I think it's the mystery of not knowing that keeps me motivated to understand more, you know, because I don't think we'll fully understand it for a long time. And I think that's what motivates me to continue with my studies. But also, I think what's what one reason that I did want to investigate it was from a nursing perspective, because there are so many patients who don't understand the experiences and to help them to understand and come to terms with the experience, really. That was one of my foremost reasons for doing the research you know so it was just to help people to understand it because I don't necessarily think we'll get all the answers and I think it's just something that makes us think and keeps us thinking it certainly keeps me thinking anyway because I've been studying these now since 1995 something like that and you know I thought my research in the hospital would give me all the answers but it didn't all it did was raise more questions about these experiences so I think the research that we're doing is literally just scratching the surface and there's far more for us to understand and to realize and I think it's what I don't understand and what I want to understand is what keeps me motivated to do my research. They've done movies about it, but do you think they ever in the future, maybe people who got the death penalty or something like where they uh, like kill them in a certain way so they can wake them up again and like do like completely controlled near death experiences. Do you think that will ever happen in the future? Uh, I don't think so because I think it would be very difficult to get any ethical approval to do any work like that or any experimentation like that so I don't think so but who knows you know it might be a possibility I mean if if it's so loving and peaceful when you die and you you know it basically sounds sounds like everything is going to be fine when you die except you have to go through a life review but in general everything is going to be okay should make you think like well it doesn't really matter then if uh, people die here because nobody's going to get hurt in the end. But what I discovered, at least for me, is that the more I know about the afterlife, uh, the more respect I have for people's lives now. But So it's a bit of a contradiction because if it if I have 100% fact that there is an afterlife, it doesn't, shouldn't really matter if somebody dies. You know what I mean? Oh, yes, yeah. Hmm, I know. So um, I think my research has certainly helped with um, my own family members when they have died. Um, I can remember my first grandfather died before I started doing my research and I took that very badly. You know, it was a great loss when he died and I was very upset by it. And then as I, I, I started doing my research then and then my other uh, grandfather, he got cancer and he was dying. And I think my research helped me to cope with that. And I was able to speak with my grandfather about death. And um, he became very interested in my research. And I think that helped him a great deal. And then with both of my grandmothers, when they died, um, again, because I was doing my research, the loss wasn't as bad as what it could have been so I think my research has given me a different perspective on death and and life itself as well you know what are your personal beliefs what do you think will happen when you die well I would like to think it would be pleasant like the people describe in the near-death experience um 
and I kind of feel that it's almost as if, as if we do go back to that source consciousness, you know. So I think the body will fall away, but consciousness will persist, but in a different way to what we understand now. And the only time that we're going to fully understand it in its entirety is when when we actually die and go into that full process of death. So you, you've written some books. Could you talk a bit about what, which books you've written and, and where people can get them? Yeah, well, the first book I did was, um, it was my PhD thesis. So that was, um, that was published so that it would be available in libraries for people to refer to. And they could see the re- research I did. If they wanted to do their own research, there was, a, you know, they could follow what I had done. And then I wrote then a, a more accessible book. Um, which is a kind of a summary of my hospital research, but also includes examples of people who have written to me over the years. And that book is called The Wisdom of Near-Death Experiences. And then I wrote another book, which was just a a small pocket guide called What is a Near-Death Experience? And that's like an introduction explaining what near-death experiences are. And it's something you, you can dip in and out of. And then I published then the last book I published was called The Transformative Power of Near-Death Experiences. And I co-authored that with Kelly Walsh. And it's a collaboration of many people who've had near-death experiences. And we look at how they were transformed by their experience. So do you have a, a website or where do people where can people find out more about you or get those books? Uh, yes, the, the books are available um in all bookshops and um, online. And I've got a website and it's www.drpennysartori.com. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. If you like this episode and this podcast, I hope you support it by sharing it in social media and with friends or writing a nice review on iTunes. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash nationalbornalchemist and become a patron. Do you have a couple of bucks you ain't using lying around the house? Uh, Would you be interested in listening to these episodes before they are officially released? And would you want to be able to hear a lot of extra material and deleted content not available anywhere else? Well, if the answer is yes, then go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist and become a patron. Now, I don't know how many podcasts you are listening to, But I bet not many of them are devoid of adverts. I'm not going to peddle Squarespace, Blue Apron, Fleshlights or Legal Zoom or, uh, I don't know, Audible. (laughs) And no, fuck all those products. Because you can't buy me. If... I am going to sell a product, that product is going to be 
myself. So you'll never experience ads on this podcast, only ads that promote the podcast itself. Let's keep it meta, don't you think? Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Near-death experiences are truly fascinating, and I think this is the fourth or fifth episode I do on this topic. If you want to check out Dr. Penny Sartori's work, go to Dr. Penny Sartori, S-A-R-T-O-R-I.com. Now we... <coughs> Sorry. One second, one second. Hello? Yeah. Oh shit. Oh okay. Sure, sure, sure. This is NBA News. I've reported on this before and I'll report on it again if I have to. PewDiePie has been the most subscribed channel on YouTube for many years now and is soon up to 90 million subs. But T-Series, a very crappy channel if I must say so, is about to take over. So everyone needs to chip in and make sure PewDiePie is not dethroned. We cannot let a big corporate fuck take the lead. No one wants to live in such a world. So, head over to your YouTube account and make sure you subscribe to PewDiePie or create multiple accounts and subscribe with all of them. This is a war and we need to win. We cannot let T-Series pass PewDiePie. We are making history right now. Do you want to be part of history? Well, do you? Subscribe to PewDiePie. Now, next Sunday, I'll be talking about my very recent ayahuasca ceremony. Till then, here's DJ Fortify with the track PewDiePie Song. Freedom is in the mind. My name's Pete.